Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Read podcast in hours two, and I'm pretty sure that it's J.B. Fletcher's as well, just to put that out there. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And this week, we're talking about the episode, One White Rose for Death, which, contrary to what you might believe, has nothing to do with the Wars of the Roses, which I'm very disappointed about. But anyway. Oh my God. You're such a nerd. I am a nerd. I mean, that is... How many books on the Tudors have you read by now? Literally hundreds. Like... Literally, at hundreds. this point, I mean, he started another one the other day, and I said, "What is there left for you to learn at this point?" Well, I mean, given that we're talking about a show that's been off the air for what twenty five, thirty years, <laughs> I find point. that to, I find that to be a rather hypocritical line of argument. <laughs> Fair point. Yes, <laughs> but since you've sassed me already, why don't you give us the summary of this episode? Well, this episode's got everything. It's a fantastic episode. It's Michael Haggerty's long-awaited return. It's got uh, East Berlin defection. It's got everybody holed up at the embassy and an assassination plot on the British Prime Minister. It's a fantastic episode. Okay, so Jessica's going to hear this violin, this violinist in concert, this East German violinist in concert. And then afterward, there's supposed to be this raging party that she was invited to. And she actually like, flew into DC for this. So this shows you how globetrotten she is. And then what happens is in the middle of the concert, uh, she and her brother are hustled away by Michael Haggerty, who holds Jessica up at gunpoint, she and her publisher, and (laughs) they all take off for the embassy because it turns out the violinist's brother was actually an agent working for the British intelligence. And the East German police are closing in on him. Uh, And then, of course, while they're holed up at the embassy... The driver gets killed, and now we have yet another Murder, She Wrote episode where we're all holed up in an enclosed environment with a very limited pool of suspects, and a murder walks among them, which we just did last week, right? Yeah, but you can always count on that to be a good, you know, driver of the story. I mean, who doesn't love being trapped in an embassy where there, someone's been killed? Like, I'm, Well, I love it, because it's like the murderer walks among them. Like, it could be anyone. It could be, it could be JB, for all we know. It, it's got to be at this point. There's just no other explanation. <laughs> Yeah. So it's it's just a really great episode. And then it turns out that, um, the, you know, and there's all these ties to like the African apartheid movement. I mean, this is right. like such a globetrotten episode, except much like last week's, um, we have all of this discussion of international intrigue. But what we actually get is just a bunch of people standing around talking in an embassy in like three different rooms for 40 right. for most of the episode, you know, so. And a murder plot is just kind of like, uh, eh. Like, you know, the, the solution is just kind of like, well, that was a murder. Well, it turns out that, no, I think actually this one is really fun to solve along with because everybody keeps mentioning these connections to Africa. And then so one by one, you have to like sort of eliminate the suspects. And when you, what you're left with is the one who it seems like it absolutely can't be. It's the guy who picks Jessica up from the airport who wasn't even supposed to be there in the first place. And then, of course, it turns out that he's actually just killed Jessica's publisher. Uh, He doesn't work for the publisher at all. He orchestrated this whole thing so that he could get to the embassy. He's trying to kill the prime minister and he has to kill the chauffeur because the chauffeur recognizes him and knows he's a spy. It's a great plot. I have to admit that while I enjoyed this episode, I don't particularly like these thriller episodes that we get every so often. Like we have one a couple of seasons ago, also with Russians. These are not Russians. These are East Berliners. 
I'm aware, but I'm just saying, like, that are with, let me put it, with commies. How about that? Like, dirty commies. That's what we're dealing with. (laughs) (laughs) To use the parlance of the time. Well, we only have good commies in this one. There's only one bad guy who's from the Volkspolizei, but I don't understand why he's not Stasi, but we'll get to that. We will get to that. But my point being is that, I mean, I think these are fun and fine, and I don't dislike them. But I have to admit that I'm not the biggest fan of these international espionage James Bondish mm. episodes because I don't. Because for me, as I've talked about before on this pod, like for me, the bread and butter and the ones I enjoy the most are the Cabot Cove ones, and then the mm-hmm. next tier down are like the go when Jessica goes abroad, you know, to some other location. Mm-hmm. But it just it feels very busy, but most of it just feels like it's helicoptered in from a you know a spy thriller or a James Bond movie mm-hmm. which is fine again I don't I don't hate it but it just doesn't feel like a great murder she wrote episode to me I had such a different take because I was thinking how the very last episode was um, some secluded cabin in the woods and Jessica's wearing a sweater and wedge espadrilles the entire episode and it's it's just it's so local mm-hmm. and small and rural and this episode reminds us that she's also a globetrotter someone who's internationally renowned and able to connect with people all around the world and it's i love that like those two polar extremes of her character i think Mm. are so fun no i yeah i I agree with you on, on a purely intellectual level i think that you're absolutely correct i'm just saying that for me as a as an emotional response, if it were, mm-hmm. you know, being the Pisces that yeah. I am, I'm just like, eh, I just don't emotionally connect with this, which, you know, one doesn't have to. I mean, I think that it, it does what it needs to do and it's fun. And as you say, like, I think there's a lot of really interesting historical references that make it worth, you know, really thinking about because of how well constructed it is and how, you know, effortlessly it really does touch on some of the hot button issues of the 80s. Um, geopolitically speaking absolutely i mean we touch on uh even different continents and they do that so cleverly because it's all done through dialogue uh, right because we actually don't see any of that i mean it's a really i think you know i've griped before about like for instance the the prison episode that it felt really low budget (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know it's trying to tell this like big story of a prison riot but you can tell it's like on a very minuscule budget with um, like one set and like very few characters and this actually um, is also trying to tell this like huge story of international intrigue around the world Um, and we don't see any of it we just hear about it but it didn't feel small to me it felt like the writers were very clever at how to tell this big story on a small TV budget in a small space with a limited amount of time to shoot the episode. Yep. Because I didn't feel like I was being cheated about of, of not seeing all that drama. Yeah. And I mean, we also get a good like insight into the for- former British Empire because I mean, obviously most of these intelligence agents are, are, you know, not that far removed from the period when the empire still existed. <laughs> like, you know. The Empire, what, falls apart in, what, the 50s, basically, and transitions into the Commonwealth? So most of these men grew up in an era when the Empire was still an institution. And I think that that's a really, that's something we get maybe with, like, historical dramas mm-hmm. like The Crown. But there aren't very many people alive now who would have remembered that. So that, in that sense, it's an interesting document to think about. I agree. And also, like, um, uh, this episode is so educational about East German politics And again, I was thinking, you know, we have, I mean, this episode is almost 40 years old. 
And we have, um, we know, listeners who are not that old. I remember learning so much about East Germany and, and the communist bloc from watching TV shows like this when I was growing up. And I was thinking about how um, this is 1986. So these are like the waning days of East Germany. I mean, the wall will fall in, the, in 90. So this is like, anyway, it's really compelling to me of the, like how it shapes this moment in history and, and, and presents it to us. Right, especially because it's so, because at least the German, the East German plot is so important, not to the murder mystery, but to the sort of the melodrama embedded within this this episode, which of course is about the violinist and her brother, and her brother's defection, which, you know, I think it's, it's difficult for us in the 21st century to remember just how like, literally deadly it mm-hmm. could be to defect from the East, mm-hmm. from any communist bloc country, whether East Germany or otherwise. So like, it is literally, you know, a matter of great import not just for the characters themselves but also for their family because there are illusions that you know basically the east german police state has taken their families prisoner as a means of you know controlling them and getting them to come back because for east german country or any kind of eastern bloc country like east germany international figures were important not because they reflected on the state like that controlling them and making sure that they projected the right kind of image was really important. And I think that's one of the things that I think this episode does particularly well is to show the huge stakes that were involved and why it would matter so much for the characters, for the, for the violinist and her sibling, her brother that he defected and like how much of a risk it is and how much it puts not just their own lives, but that of their family members in danger. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it's like a retribution arresting of their parents who've done nothing wrong, right? Really just to get them to come back. And what I thought was really interesting was how um, Greta has said all along, she's not political. She's just a violinist. She's not political and doesn't realize that her brother has been the secret agent all along and she's kind of betrayed by him. And actually, he's not defecting. He's escaping for his life and being protected by the British embassy because he's been working for them. And in that final scene, when the police show up to take them back, she said she has like sort of come into her own as this political figure who recognizes how important she is to the state and that that carries enough weight to protect her brother. She, so she tells the police, like, he's not coming with you. It's basically what we don't trust what you'll do with him, right? So I mm-hmm. will return home. You will free my parents if I return home. And I will be a symbol of like coming back and being part of East Germany. And in exchange, you're going to let my brother go. And they agree. I mean, it's really this like incredibly powerful moment. And then, of course, she looks miserable as she's driving away. And Jessica says, oh, Michael, you've got to help her. And he's like, we're already on it. Don't worry. So we know that she'll get out, too. I mean, like I said, I mean, I think that that's maybe part of the reason uh, for my frustration is like, I think that those elements all work great, but they're not really relevant to the murder. Like, but they work great as good television, just I'm not sure that they work as a great (laughs) murder she wrote moment. Like that's... Well, sure. It also, I think it's also a copycat of the Leo episode Mm -hmm. with the ballet dancers who defect, you know, like in the middle of the ballet, they defect and Jessica doesn't know what's going on. Like... That sort of inciting incident is exactly the same here. Right. But I mean, it does speak, you know, speaking historically, that does speak to just how like pertinent all of this was. Again, I think it's so easy for us in the 21st century to forget how like dominant the Russia US rivalry was throughout the 80s. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's something that I think has been smoothed out of cult- popular culture consciousness, but it was everywhere at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in the Golden Girls, for example. It's certainly here in Murder, Shirt, as mm-hmm. you said, that this is the second time we've dealt with, you know, communist issues 
I think every TV show I watched as a kid in the 80s had some requisite episode, either about the Soviet Union or about East Germany. What gives this extra, this episode a little more bite now is obviously now that the Russian invasion of, Ukra- invasion of Ukraine, which obviously I know is not the same, but there is a relevance to Eastern Europe in American consciousness that hasn't been true since the Cold War. Like there's a renewed sort of attention to the geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and Russia in a way that hasn't been true for a very long time, not consciously anyway. And in addition to that, we also have all of these African politics going on in this episode. I mean, we've got someone who was born in Rhodesia. Um, She's masquerading as a wealthy, as the daughter of a wealthy white landowner, when actually she was the product of a sexual assault on a black woman. Um, So there's like some really complicated racial and economic politics there. We've got people who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement and were arrested for their demonstrations in South Africa. Um, so that's touching upon, you know, politics in South Africa at the time. I mean, this is, we're kind of everywhere. And then somebody's trying to kill the British prime minister, we're told. So this is like wild. Yeah. I mean, there's one of the moments that stood out to me the most. I mean, obviously there is the, the re- revelation of, um, of Margot, which I love the name Margot, by the way, um, of Margot. Do you, do you like that name? I do. Margot. I don't know Mar- how I feel about it. I mean, Margot Channing most famously, but anyway, um. So, you know, we get the revelation of her mother's sexual assault, which is horrifying. And, you know, I think that it's handled reasonably well. But I was also struck by the moment when... Well, and passing politics, too, is what I was going for. Right. Because she then, you know, is raised in London and she masquerades as a white person, which she is, but she's biracial. Right. Uh, and she masquerades as white, you know. So there's like this whole like passing politics, too, involved in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, a very fascinating moment of, of a television melodrama. Not necessarily germane to this particular murder she wrote has nothing to do with the murder plot and as it turns out yeah fascinating in its own right so i think that lots of very interesting side stories that make for compelling watching but there's also it's a throwaway line but there's this moment when andrew who's the who ends up being the murderer is making this very quintessentially british but also very like condescending remark about you Mm -hmm. know a tribal chieftain that he that you know talks about wanting to learn to read and to have all these libraries introduced to his village. But unfortunately, as Andrew concludes, nobody in the village could read. <laughs> yes. And I was just... And then he laughs. I mean, talk about... I mean, it's played so that we realize that he's a boorish oaf. Like, it's not meant to be... Like, we're not meant to yeah. laugh a lot. He's with, this colonial vestige. Yes, exactly. Which is what I was getting at earlier when I talked about, you know, that these are men who would have been... Involved in colonial administration or whose fathers would have been involved with colonial administration. So like we're still within living memory. And there is that, as you say, that vestige of the contemptuous attitude that the colonizers often had toward the colonized. Oh, that moment is so disgusting. It is. It's horrifying. I was just like, I'm really glad he's the murderer because he's gross. He is gross. I mean, but he's such a, such an archetype of how Americans imagine that particular kind of British figure to be like, it's not a stereotype exactly, but it's, it's, it puts its toe on the line. I mean, everything about him from the mustache to... He's like, how do you describe that? It's like kind of a handlebar, but it's more than that. It's Yeah. What is this mustache? How do we... What's this mustache called? It's ridiculous. I'm afraid I'm not a, a, a mustacheologist, but... Me either. But that mustache combined with his stature, like he's stout, he's plump, he's a little bit balding with this curly hair. I mean, it looks like if you like told the average American to close their eyes and like imagine a British person... I feel like this is who they would come up with, right? Like this cartoonish British person. Like a character from the Thornberries or something. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, if you were to be like, picture someone ruling in the British Raj, this is who they would imagine. Like, this is literally the image that would come to mind. What are you doing? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. My department chair just texted me. Ah. I was confused as to what was happening. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, British is giving a, a very good history lesson of 80s geopolitics. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, TJ can't escape our notice that who rises above all of those geopolitics? Who's the one who's not involved in any of this and doesn't do anything wrong and emerges perfect? And in fact, it's their country. Okay, granted, it's an embassy, so it's sovereign soil for someone else. But it's their country where all this is like being settled and where all the sanctuary takes place. Oh, yeah. It's the Americans. Boom. Right. I'm not an Americanist. I'm just like reveling in like how this series presents like, you know, everybody else is messed up, but Jessica's got her shit together. Which, of course, I mean, that in itself is complicated (laughs) because of Lansbury's own like, I know. know. There's a moment where she's like, why am I being held here? I'm not a British subject. And I'm like, madam. (laughs) In fact, madam. (laughs) Right. And of course, the fact that she's Anglo-Irish is even more fascinating. So there's a, you know, there's a whole kind of like... And a naturalized like, American citizen, Right, too, exactly. So. I mean, it's real... I mean, I, I don't know how much it would have been on the consciousness of any given viewer, but it's just really interesting to think about the ways in which all of these different threads are being woven together in this fascinating tapestry, if you will. I love it. That's why I think this is such a great episode. I mean, I, like I said, I agree with you that it's a very f- great episode of television. I'm not sure it's a great episode of Murder, She Wrote, but... I also thought, I'm going to say, though, I think also the way the clues were planted, you know, so it's called one right, what, what, that's really hard to say, isn't it? One white rose of death. Uh, and like that starts out with the guy, he's on the phone. It's like a, there's a, a confidential phone call. He goes to take it and he says, what's the code? The code is one white rose. Jessica just happens to be walking by and overhears. And then we also see Margot. Our, the first secretary's wife is like loitering on the stairs. So we know she hears this code and she knows Jessica hears it and she's witnessing all of this. And so it leaves you, I just, the way that the clues are planted in this episode leaves you, I think, much more able to try to solve along and guess. And I love episodes like that. Yeah. Because then, of course, when he turned, when the guy turns up dead and he's clutching a rose and then we're like, oh, that was significant. Oh, Margot heard. Maybe it was her who did it, you know, and it starts this whole like chain of deduction. Mm-hmm. I just think that's really fun. And they don't always write them like this. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. Well, I guess we obviously have to talk about, you know, everyone's favorite Irish policeman. Or I, guess, I mean, he's working for the English government, but he's Irish. Um, he's Irish. And now he's working for the Secret Intelligence Service instead of MI5. Right. Whatever the difference is, I don't even know. But <laughs> who even knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course, you know, Michael Haggerty is a lovely character, and I give Lynn Cario a pretty good, he does a pretty good Irish accent. I mean, apparently his mother was Irish, so maybe that helps explain why, like, um, or of Irish descent anyway. And I think he is pretty, although his constant use of boyo is a bit much, but. Don't blame him. He didn't write the lines. Right. I don't, but that's one of those words that, you know, that popular culture always uses to represent Irishness, like boyo. Yeah. It's all like that. And I tell you, like, my if, family if, is Irish, and like nobody ever says "boyo." I was going to say you're you're more recently Irish than I am. I was curious if you could give us any no, insights. Nobody into. ever says that. But I love this reunion between the two of them. Teach like so. 
he turns up at the table right after the publisher says all that racist stuff, and he's, like, introducing himself with a different name and a different occupation, and Mm -hmm. Jessica is smart enough that she just rolls with it, you know, and then, um, oh, I just, I think they have such chemistry Uh together as actors, because, of course, they've been in a lot of stuff together. They do have chemistry. And, um... But they also, they spark his characters together. Like, he he later, you know, back in his or her hotel room, somebody's hotel room, she's like, what is going on? And he finally confides, like, okay, now I'm working for the SIS, and this is my stage name that I've taken, my pseudonym that I've taken, and, and you know, you know, you got to just go with it. And um, she's like, this is such a whirlwind, you know, you sweep in, and it's always a whirlwind. And then he leaves, and you, she, there's this, like, moment where we look at Jessica's face, and you can just see that she's, like, overwhelmed by Tornado Michael, but also, like, she's so flattered by him. Like, she finds him so charming and exciting. You can tell. Yes, I, I find that endearing, but I'm also just like, stop trying to hook them up together. Like, Jessica Fletcher does not need a man. Like, she is perfectly acceptable on herself. So she doesn't need someone, some man to sweep into her life. Okay, ordinarily, I agree with that. Um, but I think, I don't know, I like their romance. I really do. Ugh, see, I hate it. Ugh. And and I think I think maybe what makes it so great is that it's never like it's never solidified as a romance. Like he sweeps into her life, sweeps her off her feet, and then he's gone again. I don't know. So nothing ever actually happens. I don't know. I don't know, Bridge. I just I don't. I just there's just something about that that just rubs me the wrong way. I, it's irrational. I'm not going to pretend that like there's any real reason for why I feel this way. <laughs> we want our Jessica to be by maybe, herself, so we can right. Have maybe her. I'm just jealous of any time the women in my mm-hmm. life get anyone else that's not me. Even if they're fictional, maybe that's that's the problem. <laughs> maybe this is a, a thing I should take out with my therapist if I had one. But probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> but the other thing about this is that you know, like she doesn't spend the whole episode with stars in her that's eyes. True. Like he's lying to her. Like he holds them up at gunpoint and hustles them into this car and ki- basically kidnaps them. And she's genuinely pissed. Yes, that's true. She and is, she, and um, she lays into him like multiple times. And I love that mm-hmm. because. She feels comfortable enough with him to do that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And then even though he's a secret agent and he's not supposed to tell anyone anything, she's like, well, you don't trust me. And then he's like, all right, I'll tell you. I'm like, I, you, you cannot tell her this stuff. Right. You're a, se- like, you're a secret agent. Like, you, you cannot tell Jessica Fletcher this, no matter how much she's mad at you. It's like, I'm not, I'm no expert at foreign affairs, but it seems to me that, like, it's probably questionable. I mean, in much the same way that, you know, we usually critique the practice of law, the practice of medicine, <laughs> right. the practice of police investigation. Can you imagine Michael Haggerty, like, actually being abducted by, like, the KGB or something? Like, what, like, a minuscule amount of torture it would take for him to reveal everything if all it takes is Jessica to be like, Michael, come on. And then he's like, oh, okay, I'll tell you all this confidential info. Right. Like, he's a terrible operative, right? Prime Minister's going to be assassinated. No big deal, you know. <laughs> but it, again, reiterates, like, he absolutely trusts her. He respects her. I mean, it just, oh, they're so great together. I love their episodes together. And in fact, at the end of this one, this one ends with him putting his arm around her and the two of them, like, sharing a smile. So that's our freeze frame. It sort of reiterates that they are kind of a team, at least... As long as he's around. Now, he'll vanish again, and she'll go back to Seth and herself being independent. But in these moments, they are a great team. Mm. I don't know. I just, I'm not convinced. It's like I said, it's completely irrational on my part. I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but yeah, just not thrilled. 
Yeah, you're just jealous, I think. I am. You of all people should know that I'm an incredibly jealous individual. Let's talk about some of our other guest stars, though. Let's talk about my favorite, which is Eric Braden playing Colonel Gerhard Brunner, the East German police officer, otherwise known as... Victor Newman from The Young and the Restless. From Young and the Restless. I, I said that to my my partner as I was watching this, and he's like, who? And I was like, ugh, clearly you've never really watched The Oh Young my god, what? Really? Yeah. How do you not know? You know what? Also, I watched Young and the Restless um, right around the age that I read Gone with the Wind for the first time. And so he also became my Red Butler. I can see that. Like anytime anybody talks about Red Butler. I can see that. Anytime I read the book in my head, he's who I He's picture. a dashing bastard. So yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. That, as, as Victor Newman and as Gerhardt, I can see. Like he's, he's quite dashing. He's also a huge bastard. So I think that he fits yeah, very exactly. well into the Red Butler model. And he fits the the like the sort of coloring that yeah. um, Butler is given, and sort of fits sort of fits Gable too. But yeah, I yeah. Like so that. he will always be Victor Newman and Red Butler I mean, to me. I'm mm-hmm. learning so much about you as a person. Like I could, it's like that that I watched soaps when I was a tween. I did. Well, yeah. I mean, we all did. I mean, I presume Young and the Restless, which was really sexy, and then General Hospital. I watched in junior high. I mean, Days of Our Lives was me. I never watched Days. I didn't do Days. Mm. I mean, my grandma watched Young and the Restless, which is my exposure to it, which is how I knew Victor Newman. Yeah. Maybe that's why I have such a daddy fetish. I don't know. I mean, of course, <laughs> because of course now, Braden. <laughs> of course, now I am of, of an age to become a daddy myself, so yeah, who knows? You you know, there's all the twink of, days are over, love. I was never a twink anyway, so. Speaking of twinks and daddies, we also have John Glover. <laughs> I love him. Well, actually, I hate him because my first... It wasn't my first encounter with him, but like my longest encounter with him was playing Alex Luther's dad on Smallville, who of course was a terrible guy, and and he actually usually plays villains. So he, you right. know, I have like bad feelings about him, but you know, he was in an early Frost. He was in Love, Valor, and Compassion. How do you not love his performance in that? He plays two characters, and of course, he is actually gay in real life. So I love John Glover. I mean, he's in everything. Like he is truly like a, a very robust yeah. actor. And he in this he plays the violinist's brother, the secret agent. So he's Franz with an accent the whole time, and does a passably good German accent. Like you know, not not a not a terribly stereotypical one. Yeah, he's great. So we have John Glover. I mean, this is just this is a great episode. I it's you know I like it as so often is the case with this wonderful podcast. I feel like I like it more after our discussion than I did going in. So I mm-hmm. I will give you kudos because you are very convincing. Thank you. I'm glad that my enthusiasm wears off on you, rubs off on you. I mean, I do find your enthusiasm a bit provincial sometimes, but you can cut that. Out, but. <laughs> I'm not going to cut that. Just to explain that he is referencing a huge fight we had last week. I mean, I do find, I also find your, I mean, I do also find your enthusiasm a little embarrassing sometimes. (laughs) Oh, TJ. I also last week told TJ to stop sending me things that he finds on the internet that outrage him because they just outrage me too. And like, why do we need to spend our lives doing that? And then uh, he said, I will remember we had this conversation. And then like less than 24 hours later, I sent him something that annoyed me that I saw on Twitter. And he was like, what did you say? The way you responded was just so perfect. I said, if only there were some way to avoid this exact circumstance. (laughs) I.e. don't look at the internet, right? (laughs) Don't go on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) This is the nature of our relationship. (laughs) 
I can't believe you caught me that fast, too. It was like not even oh, 24 hours. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I've been nursing that grievance for 24 hours, so I was going to seize the opportunity, <laughs> the first available opportunity to... I really thought I was better than you at like finding random shit that made me upset and sending it to you. I really did. Nope. I really thought I was the, the one on the... On the moral high ground? Yep. <laughs> As I said... <laughs> You look down on us all so often, I'm surprised you don't get have a permanent nosebleed. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Seth. Anyway. We love, listeners, we do truly love each other. As much as we exasperate each other, our, our, our love is fierce and deep. We just infuriate one another, but we love each other nevertheless. <laughs> We're just like brother and sister. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, listen, I don't want to end talking about us, so I want to end talking about this episode. So there's one other thing I want to say, which is that uh, there's this, you know how every TV show has to do this. There has to be like one dumb character mm -hmm. so that somebody has to explain something to the audience. Yes. In fact, I remember the, the writer listening to the writers of The West Wing talk about that at one point. It was like, this is so embarrassing. Like, <laughs> this person is supposed to be, like, the chief of staff to the president, and they have to be like, what's X? And it's like, I really hope you know what X is, because you're running the country. Um, and in this episode, it's the East German police are at the airport, and then Jessica looks at Wickham, and she's like, what's Volkspolizei? And he says, oh, I can see, dear lady, you have a lot to learn about international affairs. Uh. And I'm like, why of all people did you pick Jessica to be the stupid one? Like, Jessica is very aware of international affairs. In fact, Jessica is like globetrotting around the world, solving international espionage crimes and working with the KGB. And this and is the woman who knew the difference between Chinese and Korean. Come on now. Yeah, I mean, surely Jessica knows who the East German police are and knows that word. I mean, come on. Right. Anyway, she knows a lot about international affairs because she just foiled a plot to kill the prime minister and arrested an international murderer. So, boom, mic drop. That seems like a good place to end. So, as always, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. We truly appreciate all of you and also all of your engagement with our social media. So, for the Cabot Co. Gazette, I am TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.